by Ray Oviedo and Ms. Jura Fina. The benefit takes place Saturday, March 22nd at 7.30 p.m. at the Cliff Bar Theater, 1465th Street, Emeryville. Tickets go a long way towards bringing dance to over 20,000 children. For more information, call 510-883-1118 or visit lunadanceinstitute.org. KPFA in Berkeley, 94.1. KPFB in Berkeley at 89.3. KFCF in Fresno, 88.1. KPFA.org. Happy ending, nice and tidy. It's a rule I learned in school. Get your money. Every Friday, happy endings are the rule. So divide up those in darkness from the ones who walk in light. Light them up, boys, there's your picture. The shadows out of This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. Today is March 18th, 2014, and it's such an incredibly beautiful day. Aha, uh-huh. you take my advice. You'll head right out this minute and go to the beach. <laughs> if you stay here with me, you'll you'll have to listen to all kinds of all kinds of uh, what is the word uh, literary light uh, about women geniuses, women philosophers. I think you know my time is limited, and uh, I'm running out. I'm 80, and I keep thinking, what should I do? And I remember that what I mean to do is to look at women, women geniuses, women writers, women philosophers. We all know that uh, it's a misnomer to call women philosophers. I mean, you know, Mrs. Kant or Mrs. Schopenhauer. No, no, no. Philosophy has been a masculine province. Of course, that doesn't mean that there haven't been uh, scores and scores of women philosophers. They just don't get the label, you know. (laughs) Any woman who writes, who uh, puts pen to paper, is a radical, a radical feminist, uh, just because she writes, asserts herself, speaks up, you remember the program we had here years ago. I loved the the name of the program. It was called Unlearning to Not Speak. Play with that one for a minute, you see. <laughs> Most women learn to keep their mouths shut. A few of us don't, and we suffer the consequences. Anyway, uh, women's ideas, you know, uh, uh, are very hard to get across. Most women philosophers or radicals in the past 
have tried to do it with poetry, well, with fiction. They want their truth to come across. So they use fiction for that purpose. The novel is the biggie. Emily and Charlotte Bronte should have been able to publish uh, essays, criticism, thought, you know. I I think that novels, well, I think of the, the great 19th century novelists, and there are just as many men. Uh, the novels were the vehicle for ideas. The 19th century, yes, it's an age of feeling, a lot of emotion, and uh, the experts tell us that you must reach the mind, thought, you know, through feeling. You feel first and think later. <laughs> not so much, uh, not so much today. Today, we do neither. Anyway, the strength of fiction, that is the truth of fiction, is its basis in emotion, in feeling. Uh, you know, you gotta grab them, you gotta hook them. Uh, Pain and laughter, that kind of thing. Most women in the 19th century had a hard enough time publishing their novels. Very few could publish expository prose, lectures, you know, the sort of thing. Few political women, yes. George Eliot, a few others. Mostly they wrote about religion. I think of, uh, uh, who was it, uh, the, the Dante Gabriel Rossetti's uh, sister, Christina Rossetti, she wrote mostly about religion. I like her poetry much better, but she, I think she felt that she could express feeling when she wrote about religion. Uh, I don't know, her brother, <laughs> her brother is my favorite. He's one of the few, few male writers who understood some of what was going on. Uh, here's a review. Uh, I think I read this to you before. I love it. It's Dante Gabriel Rossetti's review of Wuthering Heights. He wrote this in 1854. It is a fiend of a book. The action is laid in hell. Only it seems places and people have English names there. <laughs> anyway, uh, I think uh, last week when I was talking about the Brontes, I think several, well, several uh, listeners gave me some feedback, the kind of listeners who enjoy Victorian literary lions, you know, uh, culture vultures who love the art in the books. I love the ideas, the philosophy, uh, you know, how to live a wise life, what choices to make, choices with a capital C, you know, uh, well, of course, the choices were terribly limited for women in that day, but they did have a choice. They were, well, the Bronte novels were basically manuals for young girls, you know, they were stuck in Western civilization and England, in Yorkshire, in poverty, in illness, repression, and most of all, in a world where their ideas were not given a fair hearing. You know how that goes. Uh, gravitas is for guys. Of course, uh, you know, 
as I said, a lot of the male poets could appreciate the poetry. Uh, they are the kind of male poets who are, what is it, always, what is it, too emotional. I'm thinking of Algernon Swinburne the other day. Uh, they had to lock him up, so many of them, Oscar Wilde, anyway. Uh, I think that the ideas, the the profound psychology in the books, uh, I, I think, well, they needed a psychiatrist. And since psychiatry was way, way, way ahead historically, uh, let's see, I think that two, three generations later, Carl Jung came along. Now, he could have sorted them out. I don't know whether he tried. Uh, I certainly did try when I got my M.A. and that sort of thing. I wrote all about the anima and the animus, uh, all about individuation, uh, internal incest. You remember Emily Bronte wrote, uh, I am Heathcliff. I, uh, I remember when I first heard that, I went, whoa, uh, what on earth could she mean by that? Uh, I want to go back to the Brontes today just because I love them. And uh, I think that, what is that? I think that it's more fun to get your ideas, your psychiatry, your thought from uh from novels, from poetry, yes. It is a better teacher. That's what they told me in school, yes. Posy is better than prose, they said. I I have an essay. Uh, yes, this was part of my little master's project. Uh, 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 the Brontes. Impossible to synthesize my thoughts on the Brontes. Uh, I want to pare things down until they mean something. When I contemplate those Celtic colossi, uh, I can catch only a glimpse of their haunted faces in the windows of that gray parsonage. With its Anglican angst, its alcoholism, Brother Branwell's addiction to opium, their neurasthenia, isolationism, and what Charlotte herself called barbarism yes she wasn't a colossi charlotte was four feet three inches tall they figured these things out uh they measured the coffins yes four feet nine inches once in a dream i was talking to charlotte about all that hot chocolate desire in her poems <laughs> thackeray used to used to clock over that uh uh i demanded to know if she was orgasmic. That was part of my dream. Uh, I like to know those things. Suddenly, Emily rose in a fury. <laughs> she came into the dream and she threw a great tomato at my head. I was terrified at first, but then she stopped and took another tomato in her hand, and she sliced it very fine. She threw the center slice right smack in my face. It covered me with a blood-red cape. The seeds turned to jewels and shone like moonstones in the dark. Oh, I can't wait for the day when we can make videotapes of our dreams. That'll be something. Anyway... 
Those Bronte sisters, Charlotte, Emily, and Anne, are fundamental touchstones for those of us uh, who imagine we can transcend our lives through art. Under the most appalling difficulties, those women strove to create order out of chaos. What is special about them, of course, is that they pulled it off. Who were they? Yeah, who were they? And why, uh, why don't we have women today who can tear off the veils and really tell us who we are? I care about them because of their visionary genius. I regret that they were exhausted by their efforts. <laughs> they had to play the role Virginia Woolf describes as the angel in the house. Emily didn't bother, but she, you know, she did all the cooking, you know. She couldn't stand being a governess. Anyway, that role, angel in the house, was anathema to Emily. She was more attached than the others to her own sacred convictions. Yes, that's animus, right. I suppose she got it from her father. That's what Carl Jung would say. She was consumed with conviction. She was a Celtic seer who worshipped the old gods, what they call the Chthonian gods. C-H-T-H-O-N-I-A-N. Chthonian it means pagan, I think. It means a lot of things, but uh, earth, earth. Earth figures, yes. Titanic forces. You know, the wind and the rain. Uh, at the same time, these women lived the outward life of Victorian Christians. Emily was a heathen in her heart of hearts. The dictionary tells me that a heathen originally meant one who lived on the heath. That is to say, in the country. Here's Emily Bronte, December 1838, she writes. Come sit down on this sunny stone. Tis wintry light or flowerless moors, but sit. For we are all alone. The purple heather of Emily Bronte is a symbol of liberty and ecstasy. Uh, same thing today as it was in her lifetime. She wrote in 1841, seven years before her death at the age of 29, she wrote, Leave the heart that now I bear and give me liberty. It's a long poem I'll read you another time in which she says goodbye to tyranny, to the tyrant's voice. I can imagine who that was. <laughs> yes, uh... Liberty now, liberty now, freedom now. Uh, I think, yes, I think that was directed to her father. We don't know, we don't know, do we? Uh, I think maybe the animus, the man within, was who Emily was talking to. Anyway, let's go dust those graves first. There was the father, Patrick Bronte. Now, this guy was born on St. Patrick's Day in 1777. Yesterday was his birthday. 1777, born Patrick Bronte, a native of County Down in Ireland. 
He was bog Irish, that is to say he was a farmer or a peasant, rather than what some people call lace curtain Irish or landed gentry, you know, Anglo-Irish types. Aha, uh-huh. he changed his name from Bronte to Bronte. Got that, his original name, his birth name was B-R-U-N-T-Y, Bronte, to Bronte, you know. <laughs> I think he thought it was French. I don't know. He opened a school of his own at the age of 16. This was an upward striver, boy. He became a tutor. That pays some of the bills. He proceeded on to St. John's College, Cambridge, in 1802. Now, let's see. He obtained a B.A. degree and a curacy in Essex, finally settling in Yorkshire. Oh, northern, yes, up north there. Mr. Bronte, uh, here's a quote from Elizabeth Gaskell, Charlotte's best biographer. Mr. Bronte has now no trace of his Irish origin remaining in his speech. He never could have shown any Celtic descent in the straight Greek lines and long oval of his face, unquote. I guess Elizabeth Gaskell had many of the prejudices of her own time. I think she thought that the Irish maybe had uh, potato faces. Yes, potato faces, I'm guessing. Uh, Now, her biography, The Life of Charlotte Bronte, was published in 1857, and there have been all kinds of what is it, interpretations and uh, uh, at least a dozen fairly good uh, biographies. I think that uh, Elizabeth Gaskell's is still the definitive biography uh, just because Elizabeth was a contemporary of Charlotte Bronte's. She went to visit her and uh, she met the father, Patrick Bronte, on a visit Let's see. Uh, It was following the deaths of all the other children. Charlotte was alone by now with her father. Uh, Now, uh, (laughs) Mrs. Gaskell wrote, What he does with himself through the day, I cannot imagine. He would join them for tea. She writes, uh, He talked at her sometimes. She goes on to say, Mr. Bronte bears a great fancy for firearms of all kinds. This little deadly pistol sitting down to breakfast with us every morning. She notes that Mr. Bronte never goes anywhere without a loaded gun. Ah, remember Emily Dickinson's line? My life had stood a loaded gun. Mrs. Gaskell concludes... He was very polite and agreeable to me, paying rather elaborate old-fashioned compliments, but I was sadly afraid of him in my inmost soul, for I caught a glare of his stern eyes over his spectacles at Miss Bronte once or twice, which made me know my man. Mm, The letters of Mrs. Gaskell to friends are also fascinating because they're more revealing than the biography. Uh, She wrote that she believed Mr. Bronte should never have married. He was apparently very much in love with his wife, Maria Branwell. 
that was when he was a young, red-haired Irishman, flushed with ambition, a pal of Lord Palmerston at Cambridge. Now, Maria is a pale figure as the mother. She had borne six children in seven years when she died in 1821 at the age of 39. Same age that Charlotte died. Charlotte died of, uh, well, of pregnancy. She obviously had some tuberculosis and she caught a very bad cold and she had started a pregnancy and that kind of finished her off anyway. Six children in seven years. I think that these daughters must have Picked up a thing or two, yes. Patrick. Patrick Bronte lived to be 85, dying in 1861. Now, when Mrs. Gaskell wrote her biography of Charlotte, she was doubtless inhibited by the fact that Mr. Bronte still lived. Here's an extract from a letter, a friend, uh, a friend, New Zealand, July 1857. She's writing to Mrs. Gaskell about the biography. She writes, Your book is a perfect success in giving a true picture of a melancholy life. You have practically answered my puzzle as to how you would give a true description of those around. Here she means Branwell, the self-destructive brother, as well as Patrick, the tyrannical father. She goes on, uh, the letter goes on to say, Though not so gloomy as the truth, it is perhaps as much as people will accept without calling it exaggerated and feeling the desire to doubt and contradict it. I have seen two reviews. One of them sums it up as a life of poverty and self-suppression. The other has nothing to the purpose at all. Neither of them seems to think it a strange or a wrong state of things that a woman of first-rate talents, industry, and integrity should live all her life in a walking nightmare of poverty and self-suppression. I doubt whether any of them will. Obviously, Elizabeth Gaskell was pretty much, uh, (laughs) well, pretty well informed. Her own life is fascinating. You can look her up. G-A-S-K-E-L-L. Uh, she wrote a number of novels and her life was much more comfortable. Uh, yes, indeed. And much more, what's the word? Uh, warm, comfortable, loving. Uh, Charlotte, of course, kept, <laughs> kept a stiff upper lip. Yes, made a fist of it. Yes, uh, she signed some of her letters. Charles Thunder. Bronte means thunder. Now, certainly nobody stole Charlotte's thunder unless it was Emily. And that didn't happen until long after both of them were dead. Virginia Woolf insisted that Emily was the greater artist because Emily left the I out of her work. Like Jane Austen and William Shakespeare, it's hard to find the author in the work. Charlotte, on the other hand, often slips up and delivers a sermon or even a lecture. And it's all too personal. For my money, I don't care 
I don't care whether a writer hides behind her characters or speaks right through them. Just as long as the writer makes me feel she gives a damn. As long as she makes me feel she gives a damn about what is being said. As an aside, I have to repeat that Virginia Woolf did finally grasp the notion that aesthetic distance is a patriarchal plot. You know, never put yourself in your work. It's too, too confessional. You know, that stuff they hand you. Uh, Virginia Woolf figured out that all that matters is that a writer write truly. Uh, the way Woolf put it was without altering a hair on the head of her vision. Okay, that doesn't mean the facts, folks. It means the truth. The truth of a thing very often has nothing to do with the facts. Anyway, I guess I'll get back to the graves. I see that I'm going to have to go on with the Brontes. Oh, perhaps for weeks and weeks. Uh, <laughs> it's just too much. I can't get it. I can't synthesize it. I can't tuck it up. Uh, synthesis is my business, right? But I'm going back to the graves. Any sketch of the Brontes must include the deaths of the first two children. Maria and Elizabeth died in May and June of 1825. Their ages were 12 and 11. The death of these two seems to have haunted the remaining four children for the rest of their lives. Maria and Elizabeth had been sent to Cowan Bridge School. Uh, yes, it's a boarding school, an institution for the genteel poor. It served as the model for Lowood, the malevolent girls' school in Jane Eyre. Maria and Elizabeth had weak lungs. An epidemic of typhoid fever finished them off. Perhaps most remarkable of all is the fact that Mr. Bronte then sent both Charlotte and Emily to attend this school until their ill health forced him to bring them home to Haworth. Apparently it was a question of money. Patrick Bronte treated his children as if they were miniature adults. In this he was no different from many other early Victorians. He was not in a class, of course, with the Reverend Caris Wilson, the founder of the Cowan Bridge School and the living model for that fictitious character, Mr. Brocklehurst. A wonderful Mr. Brocklehurst in the movie Jane Eyre. He's the founder of Lowood in Jane Eyre. Henry Danielle, the renowned Hollywood actor who played Brocklehurst, bears an astonishing resemblance to the sketches Charlotte made for the book. When her publisher suggested these sketches be used as illustrations, she termed them, term the mere scribblings. While the Reverend Bronte did not subscribe to the theory so dear to the hearts of men like the Reverend Wilson that children's clothes caught fire to teach them a lesson, he did believe in admonishing their parents for neglect. Yes. Uh, yes. In a letter entitled Cremation, which was published in the Leeds Mercury, Patrick Bronte very sensibly points out I have performed the funeral service over 90 or 100 children who were burnt to death in consequence of their clothes having taken fire. It's the end of the quote. 
he goes on to state that they were, in every case, clothed in cotton or linen. He recommends silk or wool. Good God. Unfortunately, uh, Patrick Bronte's nurturing efforts on behalf of his own children rendered them mute. Uh, let's see, the youngest Anne was about four, and yes, he noticed that they weren't talking. The father used the device of a mask in order to persuade them to express themselves. Mrs. Gaskell quotes Patrick. Uh, the father, he says, I began with the youngest and asked what a child like her most wanted. She answered, age and experience. I asked the next, Emily, what I had best do with her brother Branwell, who was sometimes a naughty boy. She answered, reason with him, and when he won't listen to reason, whip him. I asked Branwell what was the best way of knowing the difference between the intellects of man and woman. He answered, by considering the difference between them as to their bodies. <laughs> Next time, I think I'd like to go on with what Charlotte had to say. She said the best book in the world was the Bible. Next came the book of nature. Uh, okay, Elizabeth, second, second down, yes, second child. She said that uh, the best mode of education for a woman was that which would make her rule her house well. Uh, I asked the oldest, that's Maria, what would be the best mode of spending time? She answered, by laying it out in preparation for a happy eternity. Okay, there she's ten. <laughs> Never mind. I have to get off the air now. This has been Jennifer Stone. I'll be back on the air again uh, at the same time next Tuesday. Till then, 